You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 193, Child Institutionalization and Human Trafficking. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. On the last episode, 192, we talked about the Trafficking in Persons Report with our guest, Chad Salatan, and he is returning here on this episode, Chad is in the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Office as the Deputy Coordinator for the Reports and Political Affairs Section. He works with the management team to lead the U.S. government's diplomatic engagement on sex trafficking and forced labor. If you didn't listen to episode 192, it's a great starting point to the Trafficking in Persons Report. And Sandy, we're going to dive in a bit on one of the key topics in the report here. Welcome back, Chad. Thank you. We are looking at some of the special topics, and I'm sure we could do an entire series of podcasts, but one of them that particularly impacted me, everybody remember my background in pediatric nursing, is the impact on children, because a hallmark of global efforts to end human trafficking has been a trend to, and y'all know me well enough, I'm going to use air quotes for rescue, rescue and house survivors and shelters. And for children, that's often a fairly permanent placement. I have friends that I dearly love who make visits to orphanages overseas regularly. And so, Chad, I think that this special topic is so helpful. So maybe we can start with kind of a summary of how that became a special topic, and then we'll talk through that report. Great. Yes, I think we could spend a lot of time on this. How it really came to the attention of this office in earnest a few years ago, we place a heavy emphasis when we're looking at foreign government efforts on what's the government response to official complicity, meaning how are they enforcing the trafficking law when it's government officials that are the traffickers? We consider that particularly heinous, and since the Trafficking in Persons Report is a judgment of government efforts, we really want to take a special lens when it comes to what's happening there. And we sometimes use the word orphanages, other times, you know, child institutions, but basically places where children are now wards of the state, the parental rights have been taken away or something, anything along those lines. You know, a lot of those are publicly run. And there are a whole host of problems that we're going to get into on this podcast about the problem with placing a lot of children in public institutions. What we particularly were seeing in our research was the worst of the worst that we can get into in depth, but we were seeing basically orphanages that were turning into brothels being run by state employees. So that really what kicked it off uh, for us here. And since then, we've only snowballed in terms of our problems that we've collected with child institutionalization. Wow. Well, let's just start off with how that institutionalization increases vulnerability for these kids. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, what we're 
seen in the research, and uh, I'll give a hat tip to the NGO Lumos out of uh, London that's doing excellent research on this. You know, when you pull a kid away from a family environment, it's just not conducive to healthy cognitive development. We, of course, have a whole range of how good the care is in institutions. You know, some are, of course, better than others, but there's just no substitute for a family setting. And unfortunately, and this is just mind-blowing, is that, you know, Lumos estimates that 80 to 90% of children in these institutions actually have at least one living family member, one living parent even, not let alone a, a, a more distant family member. So what we're seeing is a lot of kids are being placed in these institutions that really don't have to be. It's just kind of like the, the way the government's doing, been doing things for so long that we kind of have those inroads already grooved in. And we're trying to break that mentality, that system, that that needs to be a funnel. So I'm, I'm really interested in looking a little more at the statement about ill-managed facilities. And my first question is, define what ill-managed means and then give us some tips on how we can address that and how we can use our voices as advocates, as donors. Absolutely. So even though uh, I think ill-managed, we can start with the worst of the worst and then maybe work our way back. You know, so the, some of the worst things we've seen across the world is we've seen where uh, orphanage directors, uh, for lack of a better term, actually recruit buyers to they act as pimps, basically. They, they go out in the community and try to find people that would buy sex from a child. So they're actually acting as pimps with the residents there. We've also seen just those directors of these institutions that just don't care. So what you'll have is you'll have older kids in the institutions pimping out the younger kids. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's some of the worst. But we also see it on the labor side, too. So you'll see directors of these institutions that, say, force the kids out onto the street and beg for donations. You'll see them forced into farm work. We'll see, unfortunately, there's this concept of voluntourism that you probably mentioned at the top Say, of the what? podcast. Volun, volun what? Voluntourism, like volunteer tourism. Oh volun- my goodness. Tourism. Yeah. <laughs> so this voluntourism thing, volunteer tourism, it's where someone usually from a wealthier country visits you know, Kenya, Nepal, something like that. We've seen it documented it there. And they're basically will pay to go volunteer at the orphanage for a, a very short time frame. And they want to do that because they think they're helping their money's going. They, they're told their money's, going towards helping the children. But what this does is it incentivizes nefarious institution directors or orphanage directors. So now they have an incentive to say, make sure the kids look destitute, to make sure that they don't look healthy, to make sure that it looks like their facility needs donations from these tourists. So you're actually keeping kids in, even worsening the, the poor environment they were already set in because they want to attract donations. This also incentivizes something we call child finders. Uh, child finders meaning they're very nefarious individuals that will go into local villages, find a family that's you know impoverished and say, listen, I have a school, give your kids to me, maybe even send me some money with that kid for, these, for the starter cost, but we'll take care of them. We'll make sure they're food secure. We'll make sure that they get an education, um, anything like that. So now we're actually incentivizing more children to go into these institutions because it's become a tourist destination. 
I read a report a couple of years ago about how Thailand is addressing that as like a cottage industry because mm-hmm. people travel to visit these kids and they go out and they actually rent kids when people are coming from a village and, and families make an income by renting their kids and they put their kids in their oldest, dirtiest clothes to go and um, be the kids in this particular facility. How do we address that, especially if we're in NGOs, if we're part of faith-based donor programs? How do we do a better job? Absolutely. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the awareness impact. So a lot of Western organizers for tourism think this is a good idea. I mean, they just don't know better. So whether it's, say, um, a, a church group that's organizing a trip somewhere, or it is a cruise line that offers a visit to an orphanage as one of its, like, excursions when it goes no, to a port. No, I haven't oh, heard that, that one. That, uh, yep, that's a thing. Oh. Uh, so I know with uh, gap year, not a, a, as popular in the United States, but in a lot of Europe or Australia, the idea that gap year to go be a volunteer instead of just traveling around, that's another source of where you get these kind of short-term problematic visits. There's, you know, there are trip organizers, there are a way to get the word out. So we're just now, I think, ramping up the public awareness on this, and it, it will certainly continue. But that's a big part of it um, is issuing those travel warnings around to make sure that wherever the biggest funnels of tourists are coming from, we can hit those first. Wow. I, I just think of a report, which I can't remember where where it came from, but it was a financial aggregation of faith-based organizations to anti-trafficking victim services outside the U.S., and it was millions and millions and millions of dollars, and the majority of it went to children's programs, and now I'm wondering how much of it actually ended up in the pockets of, of institutional directors. just makes me want to know a lot more about this. Yes, and if you ever, I had a fascinating meeting with um, someone that worked on human trafficking in the government in Haiti, and he was explaining the amount of money, I, I don't have the exact figures, but the amount of money that goes into the, like the private orphanage, cottage mm-hmm. industry, so to speak, versus the amount, amount of actually in the budget for the government working on this, it, was, it just dwarfed it. So mm-hmm. it, the idea that you know, this amount of money can actually just overwhelm any kind of possible oversight in the country, we really are going to need to address it, like you said, from descending from those places that are actually creating the tourist destination in the first place. Well, and, and you know, I'm always thinking about how this podcast will not just help my listeners, but how it will inform and educate my students. And so one of the vocabulary terms I'm adding to the current class is institutional complicity. Would you define that term, please? So, I feel like it's a pop quiz. Institutional yeah, complicity there you go. With me. You're back in school. Uh, similar to what I was referring to before, where the actual organization itself that's running the institution is guilty in organizing or somehow facilitating the trafficking of the residents in the institution. Yes. I just cannot imagine how we can be blind when we visit places like that. And I think one of the parts about this where we can be smarter 
wiser, better stewards is to ask more questions, particularly when we're at a fundraising event and they're showing pictures of children and asking who those children are. And and we have laws in the U.S. about how we use children's pictures. And I think sometimes funders, donor-driven programs go outside where they're in countries where the children are not protected to the same level. And so we have to start asking questions about media policies. Those are basic things that can help prevent our response being an emotional heart tug and begin to be more intentional about understanding the basis for that. You really hit some buttons for me. So let's look at a little more further down in this report. How and why does the vulnerability extend to their departure or aging out of the institution? Exactly. And this this gets to the point that even if there wasn't a situation where there was sexual or labor exploitation during childhood, afterwards we see that those that had to grow up outside of family environment didn't grow up with uh, learning the kind of social maturities and kind of that wariness of what could become a trafficking situation. So someone that, say, didn't grow up in a family environment perhaps is a little starved for affection. So we have the concept of the lover boy, which anyone that's studying trafficking knows is where someone, kind of a fake boyfriend, tries to come along and pretend he's in love with a young girl, or I'm sure it could work vice versa. And eventually he dupes her into going into prostitution to like help support them financially. And then it just becomes a full-blown sex trafficking situation. Someone that could have grown outside family environment, didn't experience the love of a family, arguably is more susceptible to such an offer. On the labor trafficking side, being wary of dubious job offers, you could argue that because they don't have a social support network, in a family that they don't have anyone to gut check them. They didn't grow up with anyone to kind of test assumptions to make them uh, learn how to trust. So because that barometer isn't really set, someone might be more vulnerable to trusting someone that's really deceiving them and forcing them into an exploitative labor situation. And part of the issue, too, is that they're at an age where their ability to manage risk is still being developed. So if they already have some stunted development because of their circumstances, and then you combine that with just normal neurodevelopment, they need more support when they're aging out to keep them safe and to help them process opportunities. And so that part is key. If you are part of a group doing work with children in any country here in the U.S., wherever, once they graduate from whatever the program is, they still need assistance because their cognitive reasoning and their support and their ability to develop strong trust needs support. In your, in your report, it even outrages me more I didn't have to go to the gym because my heart rate got up reading this report. It says, some traffickers in recognizing the heightened vulnerability of these children wait for, wait for, that they sound like 
predators, oh, they are, they wait for and target those who leave or age out of institutions. Just the mental image of prowling outside waiting. We hear those stories here from some of our institutions and to know that that's happening around the world and we have documentation really needs to challenge many of us to go back and review how we support residential programs for our children and our youth. And I think when you're talking about children, are you setting that at like age 18? We are. Yeah. Okay. So we are talking about youth as well as, as really young children. And if I could cut in just to raise your heartbeat a a little bit more, when we say that they're targeting those leaving the institutions, we actually have research to show that it's actually in some cases they're physically waiting outside the discharge doors of these institutions. Wow. They're physically there and either due to indifference or lack of resources, there is no policing or enforcement or, or, wait, or any kind of you know, halfway program to make sure that once children leave that they can do anything but have to rely on a trafficker to sustain themselves. Oh, unfathomable. Well, in response then, the report offers some steps to protect children. Can we talk about something that will calm me down just a little bit? (laughs) Of course. Now, so some of the solutions that are more closer to our wheelhouse that have to deal specifically with trafficking have to do with oversight and, you know, combating that institutional complicity that we were just referring to. There's no reason why we can't have greater checks, say background checks on directors, and then periodic in-person visits to these institutions by those I know what to look for to ensure that there, there isn't any malfeasance happening. But in the, in the broader sense, and it's not as close to what my office works on, but we should be looking away from the child institutionalization model as a way to care for children. First of all, as we mentioned, with you know, 80 to 90% of children having a living parent, and probably even more a distant relative, you know, we need to find a way to keep parents in their home, not even just a family home, but their home. Unfortunately, what you see across the world are a lot of policies that actually remove children from their parents. Now, of course, there are situations where that's warranted, but when you, you have to wonder if it's gone too far. And we have to find a way that we don't have to have so many children in the institutions. Another way looking at this, and this is Unfortunately, this is actually one of the sadder ones. Sorry, I thought I was going to give you hope. (laughs) But in terms of disabilities, unfortunately, a child that's born with disabilities in a lot of places, there's no healthcare structure to keep that child with the parents. Sometimes that's just out of necessity, but a lot of times it's just because the government says this child has a disability, they need to live in this home. And it's actually a state policy to move the child into such an institution where there's just not, they're just substandard. There's not the care there. If you really want to get your heartbeat up, there's this group called Disability Rights International that has done excellent and just horrifying research into what's happening to some of institutions, not just for children, but for those with physical or mental disabilities and the kind of horrific things that are happening to them in that kind of situation. And your research shows that they have an increased vulnerability to being trafficked? Yes. I mean, just for all the reasons that we were stating before about not understanding risk and the cognitive development, I mean, it's just amplified when you're talking about right. um, disabilities because there's just not the the care there when you're growing up in that environment. 
and I think in general too, um, beyond the beyond children, we have seen that there is increased vulnerabilities when it comes to just any disability. Um, I mean, some of the earliest cases in the United States had to deal with, I think it was Mexican citizens in, in the United States that um, had uh, disabilities that were forced to beg. And I think they were, of course, more vulnerable to physical and psychological coercion because of their disabilities. Very troubling. One of the recommendations that is very relevant to those of us here in the U.S. that support many programs that operate outside our borders. It says donor countries can look at ways to increase oversight of organizations and charities funneling money to residential institutions. So can you give me some examples of what that might look like? Certainly. So I I think what happens is it's really hard to say that an organization that's working with children and has the right photos of, you know, the, the impoverished, destitute child in the crummy-looking institution that they don't need help. But there are so many of these institutions that are bogus. I'll, I'll define in. that technical term, Please. bogus, for people. <laughs> means it's fake. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's happening there is, you know, just an unscrupulous individual is enriching themselves by using this as a front. So doing the homework on who's backing this organization, um, do they have any kind of credentials? You know, you don't have to, you know, go and visit yourself to ensure it's real, but other people do do that. You know, there are charity watchdogs, you know, Charity Navigator, for example. There are places that will do this research and inform you what's really happening there. Uh, so I, I think we have to be more cautious before we click the donate button to see if as anyone else verified that this is the real deal. Right. Wow. We did a previous podcast with an organization in Tanzania, podcast number 161, that talked about some alternative ways to assist kids who do need help. And I saw in your report that you also talk about a paradigm shift away from institutional care. So what, what does that look like? Right. So as an in-between, I think there are smaller settings that would be the, the kind of in-between step where you can have more individualized attention and love towards a child. But eventually, obviously, I think a foster system is the best. Now, of course, that needs to be done right. I mean, there needs to be oversight of foster parents and the proper bureaucracy to train and set up that system. But any way that you can get a system that resembles the family environment that is the ultimate goal. And so you do that through moving from the large institution all the way down to where you can have a dedicated parent, whether that's returning the child to the birth parent because you get rid of some of these policies that unrightly remove parents' rights or systems that can place child with a family member or beyond that, setting up a, a foster system where you have willing citizens that want to adopt and having a system in place to train them about how to care for the children and oversight over that kind of foster home. But that's, that smaller, loving environment is still going to be better than any kind of institution. Well, and I love the way that this is summarized in the TIP report, because it really focuses on the health and well-being. It's very proactive for the child. And if you have a healthy child, you're going to reduce vulnerability to trafficking. If we just look at the moment where they might encounter a trafficker, we're missing the boat. 
we just have to make them strong. Go back and listen to all the podcasts on Build a Strong Child. This is so important to be proactive. And kids who are healthy and have developmental assets are much less vulnerable to being trafficked. What about you recommend the UN guidelines for alternative care for children? Is this something that's going to be more and more integrated in your research as well? Yes. So we are trying to deepen our relationship with groups like LUMOS and Disability Rights International to incorporate their assessments into ours in the country narratives for the Trafficking in Persons report. And, you know, when governments ask, what can we do? It's always good to point to, you know, a a well-researched international document like something produced from the United Nations because it's therefore agreed upon globally that this is the way to go. We try to target our recommendations on child institutionalization to places that are most in need of it, places where we've seen that institutional complicity, places that want to do better. So we have been approached by some governments that know they want to move away from this model, but just don't know where to start. So that's where we can connect them with these resources because they've recognized the problems with having unscrupulous orphanage directors that are doubling as pimps and things like that. Wow. And just kudos to you guys putting this report together. On page 23, you have a photo of young children looking through a security gate. And I've talked a lot on this podcast about media ethics, and we don't see any faces. We just see children looking out from the back, so almost silhouettes. And that's a great example of how we can still tell their story without re-exploiting them. And so kudos to your team for a really well done report. Oh, we we really appreciate that. This is our big project each year. So a lot of work goes into it. And it is appreciated. I'll give you one last statement, anything you want to say, and then we've got to shut it down for this week. I think I just encourage everyone to look, go online and type in trafficking in persons report. And we, it's available publicly every year. We release every June. So we'll have another one coming up June 2019, uh, if everything goes to plan. And the beginning of that report will have uh, more special topics of interest like this one that you know, anyone following trafficking will hopefully be able to see what research we're uncovering now. That's great. And we'll have a link to this PDF as well on our show notes. And we hope that you'll join us at Ensure Justice, March 1st and 2nd, 2019, Find a way to register at www.insurejustice.com. Thank you so much, Chad, and we look forward to having you back another time. Thank you very much. Chad and Sandy, thank you so much. So, Sandy, so much of the work of the Global Center for Women and Justice is centered around study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference. And I think about our conversation today of the importance of studying these issues because there's so much here in this report, as we've talked about today. Um, that if you don't know and just are well-intending of going in and trying to help, uh, you could actually make things worse. And that's why we also invite you, in addition to looking up the tip report, to take the first step and learn more about the five things you must know, a quick start guide to ending human trafficking. Uh, You can download a copy of that book for free on our website at endinghumantrafficking.org. It is the five critical things that Sandy and the Global Center for Women and Justice have identified that will help you to fight against human trafficking, the things to know before you even 
begin. Again, you get access to that at endinghumantrafficking.org, as well as all of the show notes for this episode and every episode. And Sandy, I'll see you back in two weeks. All right, Dave. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.